You know, I think the oh, as as time progresses, the line between product and engineering is going to blur and blur further. Um, I think the reason for that is because the best engineers are the ones who are product minded, and the best product managers and the best product leaders are the ones who are engineering minded. And and we see this all the time, right? Like the engineers are able to think about why am I doing the thing that I'm doing and what problem is it solving can basically optimize for the outcome that really matters to the business. And the product-minded people who can think engineering are the ones who can really understand the realities and the constraints of what's possible and can kind of think within those constraints and then break them in very thoughtful ways to create products that we could have never imagined otherwise. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Future of Product. This week, I've got two guests on the podcast that I know quite well. They're Anamesh Kortzana, founder and CEO of Player Zero, uh, the place that pays my bills, uh, and Matt Kasner, uh, head of product at the same. Guys, uh, I would thank you so much for your time, but I, I do think technically this is a work meeting. Uh, so, gentlemen, um, thank you for your time. Uh, Anamesh, since this is your first time ever on the podcast, would you mind yourself Yeah, absolutely. Um, hey everyone, my name is Anamesh Cortana, um, founder and CEO here at Player Zero. I've been working with Matt and Max now for, Max, we've been working together for, for almost a year, Matt, a little bit more than that. And uh, yeah, really excited to be here. So glad to have you, man. Uh, and for those who aren't familiar, uh, Matt was actually the second ever guest that I had on the pod, uh, which seems like it was about 15 years ago. <laughs> a few iterations and, ago, and yeah. Would you mind uh, reintroducing? Yeah, um, I'm Matt Kasner. I do help on the product side. I think more recently kind of shifted more towards the go-to-market, though, depending on who you ask, there are product functions within go-to-market. So um, at an early stage, startup, wear a lot of hats. I get to work, you know, every day with, with Max and Anamesh to make sure that we're building the right thing for the right people and telling the right story. Um, so you know, these are my... These are my partners in crime and, and making things happen and, and building something that hopefully people love. Right on, man. Yeah, 100%. So real quick, uh, before we like get into it, I just want to start by putting Player Zero in the spotlight a bit. Um, so Anamesh, would you mind giving a very quick introduction to Player Zero, kind of who we are, what we do in, in a few sentences? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Player Zero is a product quality platform. Um, basically, what we do is we use data and AI to basically motivate a... a systematic process to help product teams build and manage product quality. Um, and to kind of dig into that a little bit more, you know, what we've realized is there's basically two or three key questions that the best product teams in the world basically answer almost in a loop um, in order to build and manage product quality. The first is what problems are happening. Second is, are those problems important? And then the third, and this is a really important one, is basically how do we make sure that these problems never happen again? Right. And this is basically what we call operational quality. Um, and what Player Zero is, is basically a platform that helps manage and execute this particular process um, for our customers. Right on. Yeah. Very concise. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I practiced it, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Almost like you <laughs> uh, That's perfect. So, uh, Anamish, um, now that we've gotten kind of that out of the way, Absolutely. Of Player Zero, yeah. would you mind? Telling people in a little bit more color who you are, what motivated you to start your entrepreneurship journey, kind of where you come from. Yeah, dude, that's funny actually because um, growing up, I I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, I grew up around it my whole life. I, I grew up here in Atlanta. My dad was a founder as well. He started this company called VendorMe, um, and uh, yeah, I was. It started in our basement with um, him and one other guy, 
Um, and so there were five years just kind of building that. And it was just extremely inspiring to watch uh, growing up, to watch how you could kind of translate a real need out there in the world and, and um, you know, also make money solving it, right? Helping people and, and, and make money at the same time. Um, I went to Stanford also after that, and that's really where I started getting into what we call data-intensive systems. Um, did research with um, some of my now lifelong mentors, um, Matei Zaharia and Peter Bayless, um, and went really deep in just trying to figure out how do we make data accessible uh, to, to people. Um, and more specifically, uh, in kind of the, 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 the domain that I'd helped my dad with in the past, um, of just around management of quality. Um, so this is actually research that we started off in a, in, in a lab for almost two years um, before we ended up trying to commercialize this um, into what now become, uh, became Player Zero. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a very long arc. I actually didn't think I was going to be an entrepreneur, but uh, both as a, as, a, as a function of the timing um, and, the, and then the circumstances that we were put in, um, ended up getting some incredible thought partners um, in, in the form of mentors and a few now have actually even converted into investors uh, for our company. Uh, just felt the time was right and the, and, and the problem was deep enough um, and that we actually had a meaningful enough enough uh, solution right, to really help, help our customers with that, uh, that you know, it felt right to, to start a company. Right on. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you didn't initially plan on becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. What, what pushed you over the cliff? Dude, uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, I I thought I was going to do a PhD, um, and so you know I, I, I <laughs> yeah no I, I I've always really appreciated uh, research. Um, it's it's interesting because you basically are, are able to think about problems from first principles, right? Um, with almost no uh, expectation of commercializing uh, what you're doing, and so the constraints of making sure that you sell to the buyer or you know, like all these things are kind of gone and you just say like, let's focus on the problem and let's solve it, right? Um, and I think by virtue of being at Stanford, it's, this is actually very interesting, uh, I think, dif difference between the way that people at Stanford do research um, is a lot of times there's actually a lot of industry involvement in the research that's done. And I think you could argue one way or another as to whether that's good or bad. But uh, yeah, I think uh, just doing research at Stanford ended up giving me this interesting balance of real industry need uh, put together with the, the kind of first principles nature of the, of the thinking uh, around research. Um, but just kind of directly answer your question, right? Like what, what put me over the edge? Uh, it was realizing that the only way for us to actually solve this problem, um, which was, you know, I think to, to, to put it in a nutshell, it's operationalizing product quality. The only way to really solve this problem was to create some sort of a a sustainable platform around the technology um, because otherwise it would have just always been a technology, right? Like it would have been this like apple in the tree of knowledge and it would have been cool and it would have, you know, helped somebody, but it wouldn't have actually changed the way that we work. Um, and the only way to actually do that was to create some sort of a, a, a company um, around that. And so that's what we did. Wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate you kind of going into depth there. That's uh, very elucidating. Um, Matt, kind of same question for you. We've talked a little bit about your background in the past. Yeah. Do you always know you would be sitting here? Or are you psychic? <laughs> Not psychic. Just, uh, you know, I, I think similar to the way Anamesh was phrasing it, I think there's, when you see the way you want to spend your time and the problems that you want to solve, 
um, thinking about in a way of what's the the fastest way, what's the most efficient way for me to make impacts. Um, and I think you know every every minute you spend working um, is one that you want to spend enjoying it and feeling a sense of freedom and ownership over it. And you, you often hear kind of uh, the cycle of people, you know, working to live. Um, and I think I don't live to work, but I think working should be an enjoyable experience. So all that to say, you know, coming out of college, starting a company, realizing how much I learned and how quickly I learned it. And when you deliver value to somebody and it's, you know, your baby, that you've kind of seen to fruition, there's something like magnetic about it. Um, and so, you know, less of a founder role here, more of a first employee in type of role, but, you know, all that being said, still have a ton of ownership over the initiatives that, you know, we put down and, and strive towards, um, and, you know, having the trust of Automesh and the rest of the team to kind of drive that it's, you know, honestly, I think it's like that perfect blend of like, um, having, you know, some foundation set up, but also, you know, the open road in front of you. So, yeah. Um, I think if you have to ask my parents, they're like less happy with my entrepreneurial journey because they saw the stress of it all. But I think in that came a lot of growth. Um, so I think if you ask me like when I came out of college and I had that first experience, I think uh, the entrepreneurial slash startup way is kind of the only way that I see it, at least for now. It's too much fun. It's, yeah. it's way too so much fun. So. You know, actually, one thing that I that I remembered um, as, as as you were talking, Matt, and just to kind of add on to what you were saying, just like magnetic appeal of startups. You know, I think there's something about the way that the work compounds on top of itself uh, to create outcomes that you wouldn't ever really even be able to imagine in um, in academia or really anywhere else, right? Um, the ability to participate and build that is is incredible. And you know, I think this this um, finding places where your work can compound and creating process and structure around that is actually a really interesting and exciting thing for me, um, both in terms of starting a company and then also actually in our product itself, yeah. right? Like figuring out how do I manage quality in a way such that the work that my product team is doing compounds over time, right, is really kind of what we're trying to do at Player Zero, right? And that function and to be a part of that is just super, super exciting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's just something that, that, you know, you're talking about the magnetic appeal. It's just something that I've, I've always really appreciated about startups. This, this morning we were actually talking, um, and we, this is something we should chat about. We're like dealing with, you know, this specific question internally about how to do a certain process. And it was not going to go into too much detail about what it is, but it was really cool because at, on my drive, which was an hour to get here, it was a five mile drive. We talked about it earlier, a little frustrating, um, but it gave me some time to think and, and started to think about, okay, I have this problem or we're facing this problem, this need internally as an organization, and then connecting the dots to how we think about building our product, the value we deliver. It's really exciting. We'll talk about it later, but it's, that's just kind of how you start to see problem solving. You kind of see it in layers and you see the connection points between them and there's always a better way, right? And there's always like operationally or with product to kind of like fine tune that. So, yeah. Yeah, right on. I think there's a there's a lot to be said for taking things from one to a hundred, but there's something special about taking something from zero to one, right? That kind of 
creator mindset that you're able to bring to the business process, it's, it's impossible to replicate. So that being said, um, you had mentioned your research and actually both of you guys went to Stanford. Yeah. Could we talk a little bit about that? What is, you know, being a Stanford kind of, you know, undergraduate, how did that inform the way that you go about your entrepreneurship at this point on this? Um, so Stanford's a really special school. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, to say the least, uh, it's some, some incredible people, some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Um, and my, my mentors, some of my best friends, all, um, all people that I met during my couple of years at Stanford. Um, you know, I think there's this high level structure that Stanford basically sets for you, which is, it is a land of intense and ubiquitous opportunity, um, with very little structure to capture it. Um, and I think it's, it's a, it cuts both ways. Um, you know, I think I personally have really appreciated the fact that there's a ton of stuff to do and you kind of get your, your pick of the litter, um, get to work on the problems that excite you the most and, um, spend all of your time working on that. Um, and so that's, that's what I really appreciated about being at Stanford. Um, I spent most of my time kind of applying that through research. Um, but the clubs and the mentors and, um, all of those other things just help you know, to use the word again, compound uh, the, the, the outcomes and the results and the learnings uh, that you get from that. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was an incredible time, and um, you know, sometimes I miss it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure. sometimes, more than, more than sometimes. And, and what about you? What was your experience? Yeah, so I think my, it's funny, my experience was a little bit different than Anamesh's. I came in um, as a walk-on on the football team. Mm -hmm. So, to an amazing institution, my brother had gone to Stanford um, for four years previous as an undergrad and then was continuing um, at law school there. So I kind of had familiarity there and, um, you know, wanted to see what football looked like in the, on the collegiate level. And then also, you know, wanted to, to be at one of the best academic institutions in the world. So it's kind of a no brainer. Um, spent two years playing football, was an econ degree um, and really didn't like that econ degree. Um, and so played two years of football again, and then decided to walk away. We had won a Rose bowl. I kind of realized, you know, the NFL wasn't my future, but Stanford was. And so, you know, re evaluated what I wanted out of school, changed my major, major to product design. Um, awesome design school at Stanford. So that was like a really exciting, um, opportunity to kind of look at that as my future, um, get an engineering degree, kind of flex those muscles where growing up, my dad and I would build a lot, we'd fix things, get our hands dirty. And it was cool to have a degree at a place like Stanford that allowed you to kind of be creative like that um, and start building, you know, just to kind of echo, you know, on a mesh sentiment, there's the, the, the people and the opportunity, I think it's, just, it's such an in inspiring experience. And, you know, when I moved in my freshman year, um, you know, next door was like the U.S. karate champion and um, like Tendo, I think is what it's called. There's another guy down the hallway, which is like when you have these bamboo like baton things and like it's it's crazy. It's like and it's so random and it's like so unique and everybody has unique perspectives, but they're all really driven and they're all very goal oriented and it's inspiring. And I think coming out of that environment, I, I understand why people go and start companies out of Stanford because you're always pushing yourself to, to, to grow, to, to be better and work towards goals in ways that, you know, with too much, um, too much structure can feel suffocating. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that was a big thing, learned a lot of discipline through football and met a lot of great people and then extended that into the academic creative world. And, uh, yeah, the, the network continues to be frothy today. That's good. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And I will throw in an obligatory, uh, go Miami university, Red Hawks <laughs> um, <laughs> moving up from there. So we've kind of established the background, right? Stanford, um, kind of amidst all of these great product thinkers and builders and engineers, Anamesh, you talked a bit about the research. Let's zoom in there, though, right? What was that experience like, and how did that lead to this aha moment of, hey, we have something here that I can turn into a company? Yeah, it was it was actually the, the, the combination of a couple of different things. Um, so the research that I was working on, it's, uh, it's a project called Lit. Um, and, you know, fun fun name there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So d definitely it, it, is, it is what you're thinking about. We were in college. So <laughs> put that out there. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so the, the, the research we were working on was basically figuring out how to take really big neural networks, um, compress them, and then after that, make them something that's deployable at a larger scale. Um, and, you know, when we first started on this research, it was 2018. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't nearly the, the large language models and the pre-trained models and all the things that we're seeing out there in the world today. Um, the biggest neural network out there was maybe one one hundredth the size of GPT-3. Um, and even then, actually, the, the kind of scalability of these things were pretty limited. And the only people who had neural networks that large were people at Facebook or um, Google and then Airbnb and these like mega, mega corporations. Um, and basically, the, the problem that they were seeing was, you know, let's say Pinterest, for example, that was like actually one that we worked with closely. Um, Pinterest had, you know, hundreds of thousands of images being uploaded every hour. Um, and for those hundreds of thousands of images, they wanted to classify what was happening in those images. And so now you have a neural network that you need to run a thousand forward passes through. It becomes really, really expensive to do that really well. Um, and so all we were trying to do was just make it, make these, these neural networks that everyone in the world kind of had seemingly used, um, make those accessible to people who weren't Pinterest, right? Um, how do we actually, you know, democratize that a little bit? Um, at the same time, actually, my, my professor, Peter, he'd, um, he'd been working on this uh, project called Macrobase. Um, and this was actually a little bit adjacent. Um, it wasn't kind of overlapping with this exact project. But it was basically in um, over large amounts of structured data, how to find correlations. Um, and I think practically this is, this is incredibly useful. Um, you know, thinking about like, let's say you have a big database over every single person who bought an iPhone, right? And Apple is trying to figure out, you know, like 18 to 24 year old uh, males in Atlanta, Georgia are for some reason, you know, 30 times more likely to buy an iPhone than the person next to it, right? Um, that's a really interesting insight to find. Um, and it's really difficult to actually extract it because the, the current way of people interacting with that data is by coming up with these hypotheses, right? Someone has to sit down and think about it and say, hey, I think, you know, 18 to 24, 18 to 24 year old males in Atlanta, Georgia really like buying iPhones and then test that hypothesis. And what Macrobase was working on was kind of flipping the narrative there, right? Say, let's start with the data, right? And then kind of churn through it and go and try to figure out these interesting correlations so that we could tell narratives, right? Um, and, you know, I think if you put the, the, the two and two together a little bit here, I think what, what, what I'd realized was the way we interact with the data is going to change in a very fundamental way. Um, because the amount of compute, the amount of storage, and the accessibility to that compute is going to change by orders of magnitude in the next five or 10 years. 
Um, and this is like a very first principles way of just thinking about, yeah, you know what, like the way we, the way we as consumers interact with data in our day-to-day -day lives um, is going to change in, in, in a very, very fundamental way. I mean, we're actually seeing that a lot now with the evolution of things like ChatGPT, right? Four years ago, ChatGPT could not be deployed at the scale that it is now, serving the number of requests and you know random questions about you know write a poem in Shakespeare's like format or whatever, right? Like it, it just it, it wasn't it wasn't feasible uh, four years ago, and because compute has evolved so much, and because the efficiency of neural networks has evolved so much, AI and data are a lot more accessible um, than it used to be. Now, I think there's a second problem here, um, which is basically, yeah, maybe the compute and the technology is available, but then how do you actually practically align that to solve a specific problem, right? And I think this is where the real opportunity in, in AI lies, right? Which is like, what are the offshoots, right, of this kind of core technology to create real value for the way that people work, right? And there's going to be a, a million and one AI companies that come out, and I think you know, we're, you know, getting past the hype cycle now um, to a place where AI companies are going to be evaluated purely on the value itself that they bring uh, rather than the hype itself. Um, and, and I think that was kind of the second part of what I thought was really interesting in, you know, the macro-based work and the, the industry work that we've done in the past in, in AI, because I think we had a, a little bit of a forward insight in how AI is actually practically used. Um, in these larger kind of institutions. Um, and so, you know, a lot of technology at Player Zero and stuff like that, you know, I got an, an inside look at the way that, you know, companies like Pinterest or Airbnb and Facebook and Microsoft and all these companies who, you know, compared to us or compared to, you know, the average company out there is a decade ahead, right, in the technology and the tooling and the processes. And that's what helps them stay ahead. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that insight, the visibility put together with, an understanding of the compute and how AI is evolving um, put us, basically gave us an, an information advantage um, to start the company. Right on. It's like all of the kind of factors converge to create the possibility of this kind of roadmap quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, so like, I think there's, there's a second story here as well, which actually has nothing to do with research. Um, and I, I think is actually equally interesting about why... Uh, why product quality was specifically the direction that we ended up taking our company in. And this actually starts a lot, a lot earlier. So I mentioned my dad was a, was a founder, right? Um, and he started this company called VendorMate, um, started in our basement when I was in third grade. And, you know, every night I'd kind of go into the basement and be like, hey, dad, like, how can I help, right? And third grader, like, what could I actually do, right? So um, my dad made me his, his QA tester, right? His like, not, not even his QA tester, actually, that, that's, that's over-defining what I was doing. I was his click monkey, right? Like, I was literally like, he made a big checklist and said like, all right, go make sure you click around, right? And, and just verify that certain things are working and the things that, you know, I could cognitively understand um, when I was in third grade. And I kept doing that. Like, I kept doing that through middle school. Um, and it really wasn't until I was in high school, um, so almost like, you know, six or seven years later that they hit an inflection where they actually started hiring more on engineering and product. And, you know, the team that I was working with was no longer my dad and his CEO. It was now a team of like 30 or 40 engineers. Um, and even then, right, I, there, was, there was a short period of maybe like four or five months where I was still doing testing, right? I was still giving the thumbs up at the end of every single release uh, to say, yeah, like this thing's good to go out. Um, and you know, I think like the arrogant uh, high school self, uh, 
you know, like if you would ask me in high school, like, why am I still the one kind of giving you the thumbs up for every single release? It was, I probably would have told you because like I, I knew what I was doing, um, but I didn't, right? Like <laughs> so hindsight, like I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had no idea how to build product. I had no idea how to, how to code. I had no idea, right, whatsoever. Um, but I was still there, right? And I was there for a reason. And, and, you know, reflecting back, the only reason I was there doing the thing that I was was because I was in the room maybe five years before that, right? Like I was in the basement with my dad. I was in the basement with my with, with his CEO, I understood the, the sales, I understood the marketing, I understood what was being sold, why it was being sold, what the, the product was supposed to achieve, what it was supposed to look like. Um, and I understood the customers, right, really more than anything. And if you put all of that together, that was an amount of concentrated institutional knowledge that lived in this you know, ninth grader's head that would have taken months to years to kind of you know, distill down um, to anyone else. And so, you know, product quality uh, is something that is actually more a function of that institutional knowledge um, than it is even of technical prowess, right, or of uh, intelligence. Um, and figuring out how to kind of distill that down to create a process that is self-improving and compounding, right, is kind of the, the, the problem that we were trying to solve at Player Zero. Um, and it became very clear through the research and through the AI work and all those things that I was doing was the, the design and interface and the, um, the way that problems are going to be solved is going to be with data and AI in the future. And the only way to actually kind of take this institutional knowledge and make it operationally useful for product and engineering teams would be through this mechanism that is being created right now, right? And so that's why kind of the, the, the why now um, could be answered with player zero, right? Um, it's I don't I don't think what we're building could have been possible three years ago, four years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like you've created that you know, fourteen year old version of yourself as a product. Literally, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Right. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Back to you, Matt. What you know kind of brought you on? What was that like? When did you meet Animesh, and when did you know that this was kind of the horse that you wanted to you know you wanted to bet on? Yeah. Yeah. So. Let's see, what was it, three years ago? I was um, running programs and customer experience at Stardex, which is a nonprofit accelerator for Stanford-based startups. Um, and at that time, I got to be an account manager for a certain amount of companies. And um, Anamesh was coming through as a student in residence, like an early, um, early startup. And I got to be his account manager. So that's how we initially got to meet. I actually remember the day we met was, it was like my first week there or something. And I was put in, it was super early. And I got put in charge of like running the uh, orientation. And, you know, I'm up there giving like the spiel and I'm just trying to figure it out. And then there was Anamesh who all the students in the room was, you could tell had that, that way about him. Um, for even being well, he was sophomore at that time. Um, you could just tell like the level of care. And also you could see, you know, having a dad as an entrepreneur, like that stuff, like you could feel it in somebody when they ask questions, the types of questions they ask. Um, so, you know, definitely had some gravity about him and we stayed in touch. And then I became his account manager a little bit later, actually. And, you know, I kind of saw his maturation as an entrepreneur and was listening in on a couple or uh, keeping tuned to a couple of deals he was working on at the time and would follow up on that um, after he kind of worked out of the program. And then there was a point where it had been about two years 
X and I was starting to itch a little bit again. Um, and, you know, I went to StartX because I wanted to be around startups, but I also knew mentally I needed to take a break since my last startup to kind of just uh, center myself and, and refocus and, you know, get some ducks in order in life and everything like that. And so, again, was kind of itching. And then um, I had mentioned to Anamesh, I had like an idea or two that I was just like mulling on. And I told him I was, you know, um, throwing some some paper towel at the wall. And then I think at that point, Anamesh, he either realized that like I was looking and like interested and then kind of just started talking. And he was at that beginning and accelerated very quickly of his fundraising timeline. I went from, hey, like, I'm going to need to bring in a product person. And I'm like, okay, interesting. He's like, yeah, it might be a couple of months. And then he texts me like the next Tuesday and he's like, hey, this is going way faster than I thought it would. Can we hop on a call? Um, and, you know, this was in the middle of COVID. We, my fiance or girlfriend at the time, now fiance, were living in central California at this lake house, kind of sequestered. And we were looking for something new, a new adventure. And, you know, Atlanta was the, the place where Anamesh was building this company. And we came out here to visit and Anamesh had said great things about it. And honestly, it's, it's an amazing place. Um, and the opportunity to build with someone like Anamesh, I think you, you kind of realize when you talk to somebody, when you see their excitement and just the way they go about their business, is this someone who I can continue to learn from? And I think that was the biggest thing is, can I grow with this person um, at the helm? And I think it was very clear very early, like, yes, and so, yeah, all the ducks aligned and or stars or whatever you want to call them. And uh, <laughs> ducks, I like that better. Um, but yeah, so then kind of made the leap and have been here, what, for two and a half years since. Right on. Yeah. Matt, Matt was the, yeah, that, 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 that was probably one of my, my most exceptional hires I've, oh, yeah. I've, I've made, just, just to say that directly to you. Um, you know, I think uh, when, when, I, when I first talked to you, like, um, I think one of the hardest things in, in, in entrepreneurship is like figuring out who you are and like what the shadow of who you are is. Um, I think there's actually a, like a Lenny's thing on this. Um, Lenny's newsletter, by the way, it's a, a free, I guess free free promo for them. Um, <laughs> 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 no, it's, it's 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 a great uh, great great place to learn about uh, product and, and it's been really kind of helpful for me. But they they have this concept of like you know like superpowers and the the, the shadows of superpowers. Um, and, you know, I think like one thing that uh, one thing that, that that I definitely need is is this, this uh, like disciplined um, kind of operational way of of thinking about problems. Um, it was uh, it's very difficult for me actually. Like I'm, I bounce off the walls, and you know I think uh, you know Matt could tell you firsthand, right? Like every single pitch I give is a different pitch, right? And it's 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 different, right? Like I'm pretty sure like today when I was introducing Player Zero, it was different than the words that I used yesterday in our call. Yeah, right, like, right. Um, and and you know figuring out how to to organize that um, to create a a, a discipline in the company, um, something that Matt was just from day one incredible at. Um, I saw him do it at, at Startex. That you know, I think he's been, been doing an awesome job here uh, to just help make that happen for us. Would agree. Real structure builder, right? Yeah, that's so critical in these early stages when you're building something from zero to have a person or just even like an organizational mindset of like we're gonna keep organized. We're gonna make sure that we're learning, and that's something that you've always been really great about is taking those learnings and making sure that we're incorporating it into the future of what we do. Which I think kind of ties back into our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. that.
Fantastic. So on, on a metric, now that we've kind of heard the origin story, how it all got started, what's the journey been like? It's been a ton of fun. Um, you know, I think uh, what we've realized is it's a different thing to own the task versus owning the problem. Um, and to kind of dig into that, what that actually means for our product, our business, and our customers. Um, when we started, we actually started, we were called Testgram. Um, it was a different company back then. And um, the, the kind of core technology that we built this company on was basically the ability to understand user behavior and customer behavior really, really well. And the idea was if you understand the customer behavior really well, you could basically simulate it. You could recreate that behavior in the form of a test. And you know, we talked to a lot of these, these product leaders and engineers and uh, hundreds of hundreds of people. Um, and we asked them, you know, like, what is your biggest challenge to managing and, and, and operationalizing product quality? Right? And their answer very, very quickly was, I need better testing. Right? Um, and so that's what we built. Right? Like we, we, we built an automated testing platform. Um, but the, the challenge, actually, months after that was, you know, like, how do we get people to actually buy this? Right, and this is one of the hardest things, like the product market fit challenge, right, for any uh, any startup. And I think what we realized was testing was one facet of many other things uh, that actually solved the problem of product quality. Um, what our customers had told us was, you know, this is this a lot of times reminds me of that story from like Henry Ford, right, where it's like if you ask enough people what they want, um, they'll tell you they want a faster horse. Right, and testing was basically the faster horse, right? Um, the problem of product quality is much more far-reaching, right? It is a problem of institutional knowledge. It's a problem of um, figuring out how to connect customers back into the way that we actually build product. Um, it's it's a problem of empathy and it's a problem of data, um, and so this is a it's it's a much more far-reaching problem, um, and it has almost outcome-defining differences, right? Outcome-defining. Uh, effects on the business that you have, right? Like, um, and then just a, a quick tangent there, right? Like, that's the difference between like Apple and Android, right? Mm -hmm. Or that's the difference between like Moe's and Chipotle for those of you <laughs> or Atlanta, right? Like, it's the difference between like most buying decisions and what we choose to keep buying. And so, quality matters a ton, but testing is this like one very kind of shallow task. Um, and what we needed to do with Player Zero for our customers was own the problem of product quality. Um, and the journey, um, to your question, question Max, is, is you know, the journey over the last two and a half years of building Player Zero has been figuring out how do we take ownership of the problem of product quality for our customers. Um, and that's why it's been really, really fun, yeah. right? Because the better we do that, the more value we create for our customers and the better business and the better product that we are, right? Um, so ton of fun and, and learning every day. Yeah. Fantastic. Matt, would you speak a little bit to kind of the process of identifying who that person is on that team? How we kind of think about that process when you were making the big switch? Yeah, uh, we talk about this a lot internally. Um, there's this idea of the idea maze, and they're doing it right is allocating enough time to talk to the people you need to talk to, to understand the signal that's coming back, right? So early on going out with a product in Testgram and hearing all the, this is great, but then no one buying, 
right? I think we talk about this now, like getting to know is important and understanding when you're going to get pushback and are people willing to, to pay for it, right? And it really just came down to, like we talked about before, like creating structure and operation around talking to people, getting signal, going back to the drawing board, testing, iterating, and then bringing something to them and, and, and keeping them lined up, right? And I, I do um, want to like, give a nod to all the people that have helped us today. We have a, a great community of product leaders, of engineering leaders who have offered their time to really give us transparent feedback on what we're doing well and what we aren't. And these are people we book every other week and we're sitting down with them and saying, hey, here's the progress we've made and, and just kind of hearing their perspective on is this enough or not, right? And that, so I think that's one level. And I think the other one is you also have to go cold. Right. And then you go cold to people that you've never talked to who aren't biased to your journey and saying like, okay, you've never heard of any, like any preconceived, I have no preconceived notion of what this product is supposed to do. I'm going to tell you what it does right now. And will you pay for it? Right. And that's where you start to see real signal is when that clear message just rings true. They, you see their eyes light up. And when, when you hit the certain like, like inflection point of your presentation or your conversation, and then it's really just like, how do I get this going, right? Like, what's the next step? And so um, I, I think that in the age of, of ChatGPT, you can do some discovery work, but there's nothing like sitting down in front of people and, and booking real meetings with real humans and, and just, again, trying, failing, going back. Um, and that's why it's been, you know, what, two and a half years of us doing that because it's put in the work. So we, we've been kind of talking around it and, and hinting at, this kind of, you know, seed change in the way that we've been doing our work, the way that we've been building our platform, right? And I think, um, not to build up too much hype, but it's something that I'm incredibly excited about because I think that what you said about, you know, the, that light kind of coming in people's eyes when you're, you're telling them about the value, it's something that I've seen with this new iteration of the product that I, I haven't really ever seen from a product before. So that being said, much uh, big moment. Would you mind kind of talking about you know, the new player zero, um, how we've kind of refined our approach to fulfilling our mission and how we think the future of player zero is going to look. It's a loaded question. Man. <laughs> it's a loaded question. How many hours do you have? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I'll, I'll, I'll try to be succinct. Um, so, you know, what, what we realized in the kind of core operations of product quality is that there's these three basic questions, right? And this is kind of what I talked about earlier, where there's what problems are happening? Are those problems important? Then after that, you know, there's an offshoot there of like, okay, it's important, let's go fix it, right? And then after that, then the third part is, once you've detected the problem, fix the problem, how do we make sure that it's never happening again? Um, now, this is actually something that we've learned, you know, as Matt said, from talking to some of the world's best product and engineering teams, right? And, and watching how they do it, it's just night and day different um, than the way that, you know, when we first started out, even internally, that we were doing it, right? Um, and this process is so difficult to, to kind of operationalize and, and, uh, and, and build from scratch um, that it was very clear that there's, you know, a, a desire for people to achieve quality. Um, and there is a desire to actually kind of put, you know, investment, right, um, both in terms of process and enough, but also in terms of, of your, you know, hard-earned dollars um, to actually help achieve it because it creates some very, very substantial 
differences in the relationship your customers have with your product. Um, now, to kind of talk tangibly about uh, what Player Zero does and, and how it kind of uh, actually works is, you know, we've we've basically built a, a really clean workflow um, around those three questions, around the kind of beat of the drum of releases, right? Now, product engineering teams, they they work towards releases, they get the release out, and then they react to changes in that release um, or in changes to their customers as a function and output of that release. Um, and what Player Zero, I think, is doing really, really well um, for our current customers and in its current kind of form of, of the product um, is help manage the story around those three questions um, about the releases that you're basically putting out there. And so tangibly, you know, you could very easily ask the question of, what are my customers, what problems are my customers running into as an output of this release, right? Why is it happening? And which issues are actually getting in the way? And are those issues important enough that they're actually changing the outcomes of my product, right? And so that answers those first two questions really, really concisely. And it does it by basically hooking into product data that you already have, right? So it hooks into your code, um, it hooks into your you know, project management, your ticketing, and basically tries to tell this cohesive story about you know, this many people are complaining about something similar, here's what they're saying, and here's the code that, you know, changed recently that tells us why we think that, you know, this release is, is the root cause. And then there's the other half, right, which is how do we make sure it never happens again? And that's that institutional knowledge problem, right, which is once we've basically realized that this thing has happened, making sure that for an upcoming release, right, where let's say I'm changing the subscription billing flow, right, um, the last time I touched similar code, or the last time I changed similar areas of my product, what were the biggest risk points, right? What broke the last time I, I, I touched similar code, and how important of it? How, how important was it that time? And making sure that you can kind of recall the right moments in your past, right? I mean, we've been building this for two and a half years, and I think in the in the large, um, you know, arc of businesses, that's nothing. Right? Like we're, we're a tiny, tiny company compared to a Google, which has been around for 20 years. And imagine the institutional knowledge across 100,000 employees, right? Um, and, and, and every company in between, right? There's a ton of institutional knowledge that gets accumulated as you basically build and release product. And figuring out how to basically become that memory bank for the past, for all the things that have broken in the past and, and why they mattered and how they were connected to the work that people were really doing. And then for an incremental release, uh, basically recalling the right things to say, here's, you know, among the thousand things that have broken in the last five years, here's the five things that you should really just keep an eye out for because this is what matters to your customers and here's what happened in the past, basically creates a checklist, right? And checklists are like the most simple form of process um, that really helps manage this quality going forward. Um, and you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's, it's, it's incredible because like, it, it just compounds, right? Um, it creates very significant uh, uh, positive effects um, on, on your overall product quality. Um, and in fact, actually, what we found is it actually even helps you build and release faster, right? And so this kind of trade-off that a lot of people see between product quality and velocity, um, we've almost kind of demystified, right? Or like we've debunked it. Um, there is a way to actually build fast and with quality, um, and it just takes focus. 
and our and our product is really really good at kind of bringing that focus in a very natural, incremental and adoptable way. And so that's what that's what Player Zero is, and and that's what the the, the promise of the product is. Um, that's what we've seen you know being achieved with our customers today, um, and kind of over the course of the next you know six months year like we want to deepen that. Um, just keep you know listening to our customers, make it better. Um, and then you know go further in that promise um, to say how do we help you check things off that checklist, right? Um, how do we go farther to just you know help manage that quality for you? I love it. It's uh it's solving so many problems in one room because you've got on one hand the data silos, everything's in a different department, everything's in a different tool. We bring all that together, and kind of as a, a byproduct almost, you create this source of truth, right? This source of well, hey, maybe we had a dependency on this person because they were the keeper of the truth before, but now yeah. I mean, we found that like a lot of this stuff lives in people's heads, right? Like that's the 14-year-old me, right? It lived in my head. Um, and it has no nothing to do with uh, the, the, the person's you know, technical prowess or whatever. It's just like they've been there for that much time and they, so they remember it. Um, but humans are imperfect. Uh, like we can't, we can't remember this stuff, right? Like there's only so much. Um, and yeah, so like figuring out how to operationalize that has been, uh, has, has been awesome to kind of see with our, with our customers. One, uh, one thing I want to add there, um, which maybe it's a byproduct or a separate outcome of that, that, you know, it, the institutional knowledge living in people's heads is that means decision making, um, the data that goes into decision making also lives in, in a person's head. Right. And when you look at product in the relationship with engineering and making decisions as it relates to quality, there's a ton of friction that exists today in that relationship, right? A lot of, a lot of product people sit at the, I need to help focus our engineering efforts in a certain direction. And in order to make that decision, they use a very small amount of data, if any, and a lot of gut. And what happens is when a person makes decisions like that and you have amazing engineers who want to build the right thing for the right people and really deliver value, there's a disconnect as to why am I building this and what's actually like going to move the needle for the customer from the customer themselves, right? Instead, it's because my PM is telling me that this is what's important or my engineering leader, instead of saying, hey, that voice of the customer mentality of like, that's what exists today for companies, right? It's like, how can I bring the voice of the customer to my engineering team to help them understand why we're building things? And you also can view this as like an operational way to bring that into your decision-making and to be the reason or like the explanation for here's why we're focused on this quality or working on this task on the checklist because we saw this last time and it's all there in data. And it makes a cohesive experience across product and engineering that otherwise sees a lot of friction and can be frustrating, especially when there are tight deadlines and you just keep packing more growth features, but also wanting to maintain quality and eliminate waste, right? So that's another really cool thing we've seen as um, an output of bringing a product like this and an institutional knowledge source for helping that decision-making. Totally. I love that you mentioned kind of the the dichotomy there between product and engineering, right? It's something that we hear a lot is kind of that friction that you mentioned. It's because both kind of teams are speaking these two different languages, right? You've got the technical 
then you've got the business motivations. So what Players Real is effectively doing here is getting these two teams to speak the same language, right? The language of quality, the language of customer. Now, I do have a fun question for you guys, though. What is your kind of hottest take on the product engineering dynamic? <laughs> aggregated for this. No, you'll be good. Um, I mean, I think that that kind of that kind of nods to it. I think what you're starting to see um, in some public forums is more focus for product management roles at organizations, right? And you ask some people, a PM is like the founder of their team or the entrepreneur that leads their team in the right direction. And other ones are, you know, might say like they are basically the microphone or the, the megaphone for business to basically say, here's what we should build. And what I think is interesting, you see Airbnb focusing more on PMMs and is it, I think it's Uber or someone else focusing more on like turning product managers, more engineering, right. And then bringing up different roles to kind of, so instead of having to have a product manager be both growth and quality engineering, maintenance, whatever it might be, like, I, I think that over time, and I don't know if this is a hot take, you're going to have less ambiguity as it relates to what a product manager is. And it's going to be, you have a growth product manager and you have like an engineering product manager. And I don't know, unless you're maybe at a 10 person company like us, if you're ever going to bridge those. And I think our product is a way to kind of focus in for that engineering bridging into the business related outcomes, it's going to kind of be that translation layer. So not necessarily a hot take because it's already starting to happen in the industry a little bit, but it'll be a very interesting thing to watch. Um, and it's, and it's been a bit, a bit painful for product managers as they are today. Um, but I think it's necessary growth for like optimizing the right things. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, oh, as, as time progresses, the line between product and engineering is going to blur and blur further. Um, I think the reason for that is because the best engineers are the ones who are product-minded, and the best product managers and the best product leaders are the ones who are engineering-minded. And, and we see this all the time, right? Like the engineers are able to think about why am I doing the thing that I'm doing and what problem is it solving can basically optimize for the outcome that really matters to the business. And the product-minded people who can think engineering are the ones who can really understand the realities and the constraints of what's possible and can kind of think within those constraints and then break them in very thoughtful ways to create products that we could have never imagined otherwise. I think Figma is a great example of this actually as a product, right? It's, it's some really cool technology under the hood, right? With like WebAssembly and like all these kinds of things. And, and Dylan Field, um, you know, and, and his co-founder, um, you know, together we're actually able to think about like what experience can we change, right? Because of this technology and the constraints and the problem that we're actually trying to solve, right? Um, and so I think over time, this, this line is going to get blurred further and further. I think the other kind of trend that contributes to this is, is just the rise of generative AI. Um, with a lot of the most basic, I would say like junior level developers can be replaced with GitHub Copilot, right? And so the expectation, you know, I've already seen this happening in marketing, right? It was like the expectation isn't just write code, it's write good code that solves the right problem. And so now, you know, the mindset shifting to 
I need fewer engineers, but those engineers need to be rock solid, right? Like they need to be able to think about the problem and they need to be able to think about what the outcome should really look like and the customer and all those kinds of things. And so as more and more of like the, the grunt work um, gets automated away, it's, it's going to force, I think, product engineering teams alike to basically think about their customer and then what really matters more. Um, and so as that happens more and more, I think, you know, I, I think they'll converge to actually the same responsibility. Right on. Yeah, I can totally see that. It makes a lot of sense kind of given the trends that you, you mapped out there. Um, so to throw it back for a second, we, we talked a little bit about Atlanta, right? Coming back here to start the company. What does building in Atlanta, building a community in Atlanta, and, and specifically being in tech in Atlanta mean to you as somebody who's originally from here? Yeah, well, I, I grew up here. Um, like I've, I've been a part of this startup community my whole life, um, and it's given me so much. You know, I think we're in ATDC, by the way, and ATDC is uh, also where Vendormate started. Um, and so I was in diapers, like, or just got out of diapers. You no, know, running, running, running these halls. Yeah, third grader in diapers, not so much. Fourteen. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, you know, just got out of diapers. Just graduated past it um, when I was running these halls for the first time, um, and and got to watch uh, how these companies kind of progressed and evolved and matured. Um, it's given me so much, and and it's taught me so much. Um, so I'm, I'm one, just like very grateful to to be a part of this community and, and give back to it. Uh, the, the second thing is I think the, the Atlanta startup community is, is totally underrated. Um, and I think when a lot of times people see or think about uh, like, you know, unicorn fast growth kind of startups, there's, they immediately think about the Bay Area. And, and granted, there's a ton of really cool innovation and in, in companies that are coming out of there. Um, but I think what's really unique about a lot of these Atlanta companies is on average, they tend to do better. Um, and two, on average, they tend to have a really disciplined focus on the um, unit economics of the business, right? They tend to be real businesses um, and, and, and less moonshots. Um, and, you know, my, my education and my mentors and my all these, well, most of my friends are, are, are out in the Bay. Um, and... You know, I think we've been very fortunate to kind of straddle both, right? I think our the idea that we're working on is is a really big idea. Um, it's a it's a swing for the fence, and it's a it's if we're successful, we're able to change the way that people work. Um, but on the other side, we're also building a business, right? And a business needs to bring real value. It needs to you know be profitable, um, and we want to do both. Um, and so I think being in Atlanta with the kind of background that we have, I think is uh, uh, it's exactly the right place to be. Yeah. So it's both of you guys, but Matt first, um, kind of you know, coming up in product, thinking about products so heavily, who were some of your main inspiration and kind of go-to people when you're looking to kind of buckle down and, and reinforce your learning? Yeah, so um, this is an interesting question. I think there are some you know, industry standard type answers like Marty Kagan that you could always look to because he writes great books and I think they're very intuitive, it's especially for, for early people getting into product management. But the what I've learned about being a dynamic product person is you have to be multifaceted, right? You have to um, be able to do a lot of things really well 
and kind of straddle like we talked about like engineering and business and so i, I kind of want to take this question actually a little bit different where I, there's three kind of main components i see that i really like to strive for and the first one is being a great interviewer and active listener right and i think you know david letterman is, is someone i've always looked up to he does a great job um, he did a great job on the late show and, and on his new series he knows how to balance listening, but also interjecting when necessary, when you find something really valuable in the nugget and zooming in on that and then expanding. And I think there's a lot of that in being a great product person where you find these insights and then you dig, right? And then you expand and you dig. And I think he's done that really well over the course of his career. I think the second thing is, is being great at empathy, uh, being empathetic. It's, it's tough. It, it can be learned. Uh, but it, it's a skill that, you know, over time you hone to be a better product person, to sit in the shoes of the person that you're building for and the people around you and the engineers on the other side of the table. And I think that the biggest one there is Brene Brown. I love her stuff. She has a great Netflix series, also Dare to Lead to Great, great Novel. Um, and then the third that I, this is a little bit of a zag, um, but, well, as a, as a foundational piece of product management, being... Um, iterative and malleable and throwing ideas at the wall and being okay with failure, I think is a, is a really important aspect to just like continuing to build great things. And we've done that here for two and a half years. And the people I really look up to for this are actually comedians. So um, I just finished Born Standing Up, Steve Martin, book, highly recommend it. Um, talked about his journey. He actually went a completely different route for comedians, right? He went into film. That was the first, I think, platinum record. And um, that was, that's a really cool kind of deep dive into who he is. And there's, uh, this other experience that I had when I was living in Los Angeles and we went to, um, this comedy club in Santa Monica. It was kind of in a back alley. It was a really cool, cool setup. And we're sitting there watching some deep, uh, you know, comedians just kind of face plant. And all of a sudden, you know, there's like a murmur and we're sitting in the front row. Right. And these are like $10 tickets and it's me and some friends at the time. And, and the lady, um, moderator comes up and goes hey i like just want to let you know this happens sometimes when, when people come in like please don't have your phone out please like be behaved and up walks adam Sandler, and we're sitting there in the front row of this tiny club and he walks up he's wearing like sweatpants and like i think he might have had a beanie on but you know you've seen his swag before like it's kind of <laughs> yeah he's he's awesome um but what i took away from that was he stood up there with these pieces of yellow lined paper and legal paper and they're so crumpled up and he just started going with jokes and some of them were so bad. I, I was just like giddy laughing. So like everything was funny to me, but you can see the look on his face where he would mumble to himself. All right. Like that didn't work. Right. And he throw it to the side and it's like, he was just getting up there and trying. And I think that's something I've heard of all comedians is their willingness just to like throw it all out there, have a tough skin and then just keep moving forward, find what sticks. And I think there's a lot of that in being a, a, a product leader is just being like, hey, this is all part of the process, right? So that's how I would break that down. I think it's important to find people you look up to who are masters of their craft in other areas and then try to relate that to how could I handle situations in, in my craft. Totally. No, that's, that's fantastic. I love the parallels there. Yeah, it's cool. I do love the same man. <laughs> Man can hoop too. Oh yeah, same. Yeah, he's training threes. Yeah. Anvash, same question. So, could you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah. So, who are some of the product people, the outlets, the media? I know you mentioned Lenny already. 
that you look to when, and, and you are an interesting case too because you straddle the line between, I mean, basically every department, right? Engineering, uh, DTM, product, you're thinking about all of it. When you're really thinking about the product build process though, what, what does that kind of look like? Who do you turn to? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think my answer is nearly as articulated as, uh, <laughs> as, as Matt's, but for me, it's, it's surrounding myself with people who are in the trenches uh, with me. And so that means one, you know, I think having a fantastic team, um, you know, grateful for you guys, um, and also surrounding myself with other founders. Um, and I think this is, we've been really fortunate to have some really incredible investors. Um, I mentioned Dylan Field earlier, you know, Dylan, founder of Figma, right? Product that we really, really look up to um, and, you know, has helped influence the way that we've actually built our product. Um, the founders of Databricks, the founders of Dropbox, Zynga, um, and the list could go on, but like, you know, just being around these people, hearing the way that they think um, and their fearlessness towards, you know, this is a theme that Matt brought up as well, right? Like their fearlessness towards new ideas um, and being very practical um, and focused at, at proving the kind of core parts of those theses and the hypotheses that come from it. Um, the best product people and the best founders, um, I think there's, by the way, I think a lot of the best founders are product people by nature. Um, you know, they're, just, they're obsessive about doing that over and over and over again. And so being around it and watching other people do it um, is, is kind of what gives me the energy to keep doing it um, and get better at it over time. Both, both great answers. Um... I didn't think we would be talking about Adam Sandler today. That was <laughs> you got pretty excited. Yeah, yeah, you got me with that one. <laughs> go, go. It's really go good. Go. <laughs> so I, uh, I do want to ask you guys, just because you know it is an AI podcast, right? What's one misconception about AI that you want to go ahead and clarify for the world definitively? <laughs> oh. Well, it's going to take some jobs. So I just want to, I don't think that's a misconception. Um, I don't, you know, through time, we've had these phases of recalibration when new technologies come into the world, the internet, right? That like disrupts your way of being. Um, and there will be a lot of jobs that maintain because maybe they're a little bit harder to automate through AI, but there will be a lot that, it does disrupt, um, but I guess where I would push back is there will always be new lines of work, new opportunity out there for people who are getting displaced due to AI. And I think it falls on communities to really say, hey, what are the opportunities that live for people with certain skill sets and how do they continue to grow and give them um, the tools they need to succeed. So, um, depending on who you talk to across the country, some people will say it's the, uh, it's, uh, taking, taking the jobs, but, uh, I think that it's just kind of this next wave and being malleable and, and being okay with change. Right. It's uncomfortable, but I think it's kind of necessary right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think my, um, my hot take is kind of in a similar vein. Um, yeah, AI is going to take certain jobs, um, but I think on average, what it's going to do is level up uh, our economy and our workforce. Um, you know, 100 years ago, knowing how to type wasn't a, a requirement, but now it is. And, and I think knowing how to use AI, maybe 50 years from now, is going to be the equivalent of knowing how to use Word. 
right? It's mm-hmm. it's one of the most kind of it's going to be a basic part of of how we work. Um, the introduction of AI uh, into the workforce and into problem management um, has, you know, I think I think now all of a sudden computers can participate with humans in owning the problem rather than helping expedite a specific task. And I think this is the the, the shift we're going to see a lot in, um, in in the products that are coming out there, where they're no longer saying, oh, this is something that a human does, and let's go and try to make it you know, 20% faster, they're going to say, let's go do 80% of the work and let the human do the 20% of work that they can really contribute to. Um, and so this is, I guess, less so like a misconception and more so like practically what you can do about it is I think, think about what you're really good at and what you really bring to the table. Um, and chances are the thing, that thing is not something that's going to be replaced by AI. Right, because if it's like, oh, I can, you know, type really fast, like that's probably not like what you're really good at doing, right? Um, and so, figuring out what that thing is that you really bring to the table and leaning into that um, is, I think, how, in in a very generic sense, how we can basically stay ahead of AI as a workforce and, you know, um, not be replaced, basically. No, right on, and I, I love both of those responses, and I just want to highlight. It's something I think is really important, right, is for AI leaders and people who are building in AI to recognize, right, some of the um, societal impacts that it will have, but to contextualize it within the reality of, and I think typing is a perfect example, right? Um, I talk about it a good amount comparing AI to typewriters, but you really do forget that scribe used to be a job, right? There were people putting in resumes. And and, and yeah, those kinds of jobs, like, you know, I think will definitely get replaced, Mm -hmm. right? A hundred percent. But that's a very small percentage of the workforce. Right. Exactly. So all that being said, I I do want to ask one final question uh, with regards to tech in general. Uh, So both of you fellows are specifically Whoop, right? Um, We're not sponsored, but uh, they should send me a free one at minimum. Would you guys ever extend that into implants? I'm talking like brain interfaces, cybernetics, new limbs, things like that. I don't. <laughs> oh man, I, I I like my brain. Yeah. Um, I like my brain, and and I like not having the entire internet being downloaded That's into great. it all the time. What cool? Yeah. Oh man. All right. All right. <laughs> Slippery slope. Slippery slope, indeed. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. I don't know if I would, uh, in my lifetime, have a have a brain implant. Um, but I do think the prospect of it is pretty cool. Um, and you know, I think the same way that iPhones were uh, were commonplace for us growing up, um, you know, for for our children, um, you know, things like that, like their interfaces to technology, will be different than the rectangles with screens on them. Um, and so I'm very excited to see what that's going to be. Um, and I hope to, I don't have to drill a hole in my head to, to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt, same question. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I got my whoop on. Uh, where it all I lost mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I wouldn't drill a hole in my brain. Um, I think the brain is a sacred, sacred thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, there, are, there are some really, like, really interesting studies coming out about being able to like necessarily program the brain and optimize certain things, which I think are really interesting. I think, yeah, putting a chip in the brain and optimizing a lot of stuff is a dangerous kind of place to go. Um, 
that being said, I, I do believe, I mean, I have, we'll see how my knees last. I played football in college. So like maybe I would throw on a couple of like cybernetic you know, like legs or something. If my knees are just broke, my brain's still functioning. I think that's kind of the most important thing. And if I can augment the rest of my body, uh, but I will say on the whoop side of things, it is a huge part of my day. Um, I look up every day after 10 minutes, I wake up and then it'll process and it'll tell me, Hey, how's my sleep? And yesterday I was driving into the office and I could feel my energy levels were better. And I hadn't looked at my whoop yet. And I was like, I bet I had like a great recovery. And I look and it was like the best I've had in two weeks. And my HRV, which is basically measures heart rate variability during your sleep, like was as good as it's been in a long, long time. And then I started to root cause. It's funny. I started thinking about our pro product this way. I was like, I started to root cause. Okay, what did I do differently yeah. yesterday that I didn't do the day before? And, you know, I closed my computer at a certain time. Uh, I ate within a certain time range. So my, like you say, you want to have two hours before you go to bed after you have your last meal. And I, and I went, I went with that. Um, I also just had like a great conversation with my fiance and was kind of off the screens. And, you know, I, I took that as learnings. And then last night I did the same thing and my recovery was great. And I think that's the type of stuff that like fuels me because I'm like so much more um, optimized when I kind of understand what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong and then continuing to zoom in to things that I can do right um, so that I can be better for the people around me because it's, it's, it's rad. I like, I really like, it's addicting. Um, so, but yeah, no brain implants from that. No brain implants. Just, you can yeah. throw it on my wrist and as long as I can take it off whenever yeah. I want, I'll charge the battery. But. There you go. Operationalizing. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, this has been a joy. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, future product folks, uh, where can they find you, follow you? Where, where can they find us? Yeah. Oh, um, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to get more active on Twitter, um, but I definitely scroll through that more than I, I would like to. So <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn, Anamesh Cortana. Um, Twitter, I think is A Cortana. Um, yeah, thank you. But uh, guys, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Max. Um, it was awesome. Yeah. It was a lot of fun.